This episode is dedicated to Al Jazeera journalist Shirin Abu Akla. She was killed while covering stories like these. You know, it's hard to be a kid suffering from an autoimmune disease like myasthenia gravis. Hard to breathe, hard to swallow. But imagine now if you're also a Palestinian refugee in an Israeli jail. Let me introduce you to Amal Mu'ammar Nakhla. He was 16 when Israel first put him in what they call administrative detention. And he hasn't been told why. Hi guys, I'm Sami Zaydan, and welcome to the Essential Middle East podcast. I want to talk to you today about the issue of Palestinian children detained by Israel. And maybe the best way to start is we'll bring in our guest, whose job it is to document the Israeli arrests of Palestinian children. Hi, I'm Brad Parker, Senior Policy Advisor with Defense for Children International Palestine, joining you today from New York. Thanks so much, Brad, for being with us. First off the bat, let's start with some numbers, shall we? Last year, the UN said 160 Palestinian children were detained. Palestinian organizations say the total for 2021 was around 1,300. Kind of a big difference between numbers? Yes, it is indeed. And part of the reason is the data and information is hard to ascertain. Um, Israeli forces, the Israeli authorities, used to release a monthly snapshot of Palestinian children in their custody at the end of each month. That's been spotty at best over the past 18 months. So Palestinian organizations, the UN, have tried to continue to document and understand the scale of Palestinian children detained by Israeli forces from the West Bank, and there is some discrepancy in the numbers. But how big of a problem is it? What's the bottom line? So our organization, Defense for Children International Palestine, we have lawyers that work in the military courts. And what we've estimated over kind of a consistent basis the past decade is that it really is around 500 to 700 Palestinian children arrested and prosecuted in the military courts each year. This goes up, it goes down. That's just the military courts, right? Exactly. That number doesn't capture a child detained for a period of few hours in Hebron, for example, at a checkpoint on their way to school. This would be children primarily arrested from their homes in the middle of the night, put into the back of a military vehicle, taken to an interrogation room, often an Israeli settlement police station, and then actually prosecuted in the military courts in the West Bank. So that might explain why some of the Palestinian organizations, like the Committee for Palestinian Prisoners and Ex-Prisoners, have a much bigger number. Exactly. Or children that are detained but then not prosecuted, children detained in these shorter-term situations. And also, another thing to note is that the age of criminal responsibility under the Israeli military law is 12 years old. So the military court's cannot prosecute any child under 12 or any person under 12 years old. So wait a minute, are kids under 12 being detained? They are, and that's what's happening in some of these, you know, what we could say is informal detentions. So an eight-year-old on their way to school in Hebron, they have to go through multiple checkpoints to get to their school. If they're detained for a few hours, interrogated, questioned in a checkpoint container, for example, that would never come through as data from the Israeli authorities' numbers, but the commission may include that in their figures. 
Well, it's interesting you mentioned that. We've got a clip here which we can listen to. It's the scene of children between the ages of eight and twelve as they were being detained by Israeli soldiers. <laughs> That's quite disturbing stuff. Let's talk about what happens after that, particularly if you're put into administrative detention like Amal. What does that mean? Exactly. It's administrative detention is essentially detention without charge or trial. For how long? Under the Israeli military law, administrative detention orders can be up to a period of six months but they can be renewed essentially indefinitely. And that's what's happened to Amal, right? Exactly. His first administrative detention order was issued against him in January 2021. His current administrative detention order is set to expire on May 17th. So at the moment, it's not clear if it will expire and he'll be released or if Israeli military authorities will issue a new administrative detention order against him, keeping him in custody without charge or trial. Do health conditions not get you out of Israeli detention if you're a kid with a health problem? When we're talking about children, detention should be a measure of last resort. That's not something that I just think. Right, that's international law. That's just international law, international standards that apply to any nation. So you're already starting out with an exceptional circumstance when a child is detained. If you compare a Palestinian child's experience in the West Bank being detained by Israeli forces to an Israeli settler child living in the same occupied territory, they're vastly different. So we know that Israeli authorities understand international law, understand child protection, and that detention should be a last resort because they implement that through Israeli civilian law for Israeli settler children, essentially in accordance with international law. So with administrative detention beyond just the detention should be used as a measure of last resort and child-friendly processes, access to attorneys, administrative detention goes even further in what we say is an arbitrary detention. There's no legal basis for it. Essentially, a child being held without charge, trial. You can't even know the evidence they say there is against you, right? No. So DCI Palestine lawyers and other Palestinian lawyers who represent administrative detainees, there's secret evidence. And that's assuming that there's evidence at all in some of these cases. So the full scope of what administrative detention is is just a wholesale violation of a number of human rights and international humanitarian law obligations that Israel's obligated to uphold. So in this case, you've got the possibility, like that of Amal, of a kid being arrested, held indefinitely, he's sick, no charges, no trial date, and no possibility to even fight it. Does he even know what he's accused of? No. <laughs> That's the short answer. No idea. I think if you back out and look at the military law system in place in the occupied Palestinian territory, it starts to make sense. Since Israeli forces occupied the West Bank, including East Jerusalem and the Gaza Strip in 1967, they instituted a military law framework that applies in the occupied territory. So that's in accordance with international humanitarian law. And essentially, military law applies to any person located in that occupied territory. But what the case is in practice is that military law only applies to the Palestinian population. Mm. 
if you're an Israeli settler, an Israeli civilian living in a settlement in the occupied territory, Israel chooses to privilege those individuals by applying the Israeli civilian law. So, you know, on the basis of the legal framework operating the occupied Palestinian territory is this two separate legal systems for two separate people. The military law is implemented against Palestinians to control the population. Brad, how does the detention of children sit with Israel's obligations towards international law, towards the Convention on the Rights of the Child, which Israel is a signatory to? It really fails across the board, from the moment of arrest, through interrogations, to the actual military court hearing. Are there alternatives or steps before the child is detained? Is it really the last resort? They're not treating detention as a measure of last resort. It's the default process. So from the moment of arrest, you have physical violence, punching, kicking. Kids are hit with rifles, helmets. The overwhelming majority of children are blindfolded and have their hands bound. They're placed in the back of military vehicles, often on the metal floor. So what we've documented over the past 15 to 20 years is that around three out of four Palestinian children detained by Israeli forces from the West Bank experience some form of physical violence during their arrest or transfer. The Israeli perspective of this, surely they would say, hey, this is an exceptional security situation where we're dealing with terror groups and exceptional circumstances justify exceptional measures. That's something that gets raised all the time. But the reality is international humanitarian law, human rights protections under human rights law, guarantee specific rights to individuals, regardless of whatever the subjective status that a nation might subscribe to a person. So for example, the absolute prohibition on torture, cruel and human degrading treatment is absolute. I'm sure Israeli officials would argue that torture is not condoned or allowed under Israeli law. There is a complaint system, they would say that, but the other reality is that torture isn't absolutely prohibited under Israeli law. There is sort of a series of high court decisions that essentially leave enhanced interrogation methods, quote-unquote, essentially amount to torture, cruel and human degrading treatment, allow Israeli forces and Israeli interrogators to use these in certain circumstances. All right, well, the well-known British charity Save the Children says more than 80% of children were either physically beaten, verbally abused, strip-searched or humiliated when detained. They didn't allow me to call my family or a lawyer before investigation. They used pepper spray on me, called me names and beat me up. Brad, 80% sounds like a really big number. Is it really that widespread? The short answer is yes, that's the process. That's what we see in the children that we represent in the military courts. It's the norm. Physical violence is part of the process. In 2013, UNICEF came out with a report that reaffirms many of our findings in previous reports over the years that ill treatment is systematic and institutionalized and widespread throughout the Israeli military detention system. That's got to leave some physical, some psychological impact in the long term, right? For sure. And, you know, I think most of the focus in the international community and from the UN is on the actual physical violence, the detention process, the violations that occur during interrogations, kids being prosecuted in military courts that lack impartiality and independence. And often what doesn't get seen is the after effects. 
There's only a few cases where Palestinian children are held in Israeli administrative detention. Much more of them are held than in a military legal prosecution system. Give us an idea of what happens in the majority of those cases. That's right. Administrative detention is really a handful of cases at any given moment. We've seen spikes over the years in the use of administrative detention. Previously, about a decade ago, we were successful in having the practice essentially stopped, where Israeli forces held no child, Palestinian child, in administrative detention. I think from the end of 2000 or 2012 through 2014, and then we saw the practice start up again in October 2015. And since October 2015, DCI Palestine has documented a total of 41 children held by Israeli authorities pursuant to administrative detention orders. Do most of the kids ever get an acquittal? No. Acquittals are extremely rare. So, assumedly, any military order can include sometimes things like simply not being allowed to go out in the street. The military order 1651 is the number of the main one that includes, quote unquote, security offenses. They include, you know, typical things that you'd expect to see in a criminal code. There's murder, there's assault. But there's also a specific charge for throwing stones, throwing objects. So the majority of Palestinian children are charged with throwing stones. And I think the thing that's unique about that is that it's not about the impact that throwing an object has. It's really just the act of throwing. I'm sure the Israelis would point out that they're not all innocent young kids. Not only do they sometimes throw stones at the Israeli occupation or at the settlers, but they're sometimes involved in stabbings. You know, there's probably might have heard lately the hashtag has been trending free Ahmed Manasra and, and the story of Ahmed maybe we should point out for our listeners he was detained at the age of 13 after an incident in which two settlers were stabbed he was accused of being involved in that stabbing he says he knows and remembers nothing about it because he was beaten severely at the scene he was hit by a car leaving him with a fractured skull eventually he gets given a sentence of 12 years in prison how common is that sort of amongst the 500 to 700? Not very common at all. The overwhelming majority of cases that we see in the military courts, you know, guilt and innocence is sort of irrelevant. We see children arrested whether they throw stones and whether they don't throw stones. In the cases of there is violent incidents, some alleged criminal conduct, like in the case of Ahmed Manasra, I mean, even there, Guilt and innocence is somewhat irrelevant for the arrest, the interrogation, and the due process rights that children are entitled to under international law. So you're saying basically there's a different standard and different process when it comes to these military prosecutions of Palestinian children? From the start, they do not have any due process protections. Physical violence is inherent in the experience. And that's the same whether there's a specific incident that an individual child is being detained and prosecuted for, or if it's there isn't a specific incident, right? It really is the process. And I think with the specific cases where children have been involved in, say, a stabbing attack, Oftentimes, the child is killed and shot dead on the spot. Which is what happened, apparently, to Ahmed Manasra's cousin, right? Exactly. So in those incidents, it's usually what we're talking about is not due process protections. We're talking about an extrajudicial killing. So the Ahmed Manasra case is really kind of unique in the sense that he wasn't shot dead on the spot, that he was brought into custody 
charged. There's psychological torture and his interrogation, physical violence. But from the Israeli perspective, they would probably say, well, what are we supposed to do if a kid is attacking someone with a knife? So this is where a child that is involved in a violent act should be apprehended and in accordance with international law. There's no question about what do you need to do. It's all there. Right? These are international norms that are widely accepted and they apply specifically in the case of Israel. In some ways, arresting Ahmed Ben Asra and not shooting him dead at the scene is what is in line with international law. Torture, ill-treatment, those things that are absolute prohibitions that Israel violates, like, are not. You mentioned the process and the interrogation. Some video actually leaked out of the interrogation of Ahmed Manasra. Let's listen into that. He's being asked questions about the stabbing attack. He says, I don't remember. I told you I don't remember. Why don't you get a doctor, open up my brain and look into it? Clips like this, they raise concerns, don't they, about the interrogation of minors. Some have even called it torture. For sure. What you're seeing there in the interrogation of Ahmed Manasara is psychological torture. I think it's clear the impact the interrogation's having on him. His mental state is altered. It's terrifying to watch that and think of what he was feeling and thinking in that moment. What I can say from you know the hundreds and hundreds of affidavits and cases that we've documented over the years at DCI Palestine is that interrogations are intimidating. These are children with highly skilled, highly experienced Israeli interrogators where they're essentially alone in the interrogation room. They don't have a lawyer present. Um, their parents aren't present. We just had a few cases we documented from February where a child had a gun cocked nearby his head as he was blindfolded and you know, was told to give information or he'd be killed. We had another child, the interrogator, extinguished a cigarette onto his arm. So those do happen in kind of more one-off situations. But the bulk of what interrogations are for Palestinian children are highly psychologically manipulating and often sort of verge into the territory of torture, cruel, and human degrading treatment. If settler kids are accused of violent attacks in the same area, in the same towns, they don't face the military justice system, right? No, they would be prosecuted if prosecuted at all, they'd be prosecuted in the Israeli civilian system. So you're not in a military court. So, so that's a very different standard of justice and process, right? Exactly. Just to give an example, Israeli settler children wouldn't be arrested from their homes in the middle of the night by heavily armed soldiers. They'd receive a phone call. Their parents would receive a phone call to appear at the nearby police station during daylight hours where they'd be questioned and likely would not be taken into custody. Even if they were prosecuted for an offense, the norm for Israeli children is bail. Now, just to be clear, this is not a hypothetical that we're talking about. Yeah, 100%. There's no Israeli children prosecuted in the military courts. They don't come into contact with the military court system. I think when you're talking about the violent Israeli settler hilltop youth, for example, and other sort of settler violence, it's extremely rare that any of those Israeli youth would even be questioned or you know, prosecuted at all. 
And there is just a systemic impunity when it comes to those specific incidents that I think are more visible to folks. But this isn't hypothetical. This is two systems, legal systems for two separate groups of people. And, you know, they sort of, in practice, the Israeli civilian system for Israeli citizens provides rights that you would expect in accordance with international law. And the military law system that applies to Palestinians is they're denied basic rights every step of the way. So there's really a very different standard here. Yeah, really for anything. Kids detained picking herbs, vegetables in land between their village and where the Israeli settlement is. Often the land that they're on is their family's land that settlement has been built on or land has been confiscated for a military barrier around a settlement. So it's what I'd say is that the takeaway for the cases that we see Palestinian children in Israeli military detention, they're not a result of individual sort of violent acts. That's not the justification for why they're there. It really is like we see these Palestinian children being targeted for arrest based on where they live and where their communities are and what those communities are close to. It's not about holding individuals accountable for specific conduct. How much interest is there from the international community to shine a light on these things, to try and perhaps pressure Israel into better compliance with its international legal obligations? Surprisingly, there's a lot. I think the challenge has been there's not enough to really shift the political will fully where Israel feels the pressure to change and eliminate these non-rights respecting policies that they implement widespread and systematically throughout the occupied territory. We've had success over the years. It was international pressure eventually that led to Israel freezing their use of administrative detention against Palestinian children. It was international pressure in, I think, 2009 that forced Israel to adjust their age of majority from 16 to 18 years old in the military court system under military law, because it was essentially lower in the military court system than it was in the Israeli civilian system. We've worked recently in the U.S. Congress over the past several years to introduce legislation that would prohibit U.S. funding to Israel from being used to arrest, ill-treat torture and hold Palestinian children in administrative detention. Those are bills that have been introduced. They haven't come up for a vote. But, you know, the fact that members of Congress, I think then the current bill, which is H.R. 2590, has over 30 co-sponsors. So it's not enough to force Israeli authorities to change their policies and practices. But the work continues to grow and the awareness on these issues and the willingness of not just lawmakers and policymakers, but I think overwhelmingly, Palestinian rights movements across various continents, you know, this has been a significant issue where the rights of Palestinian child detainees is at the forefront of sort of pushing forward a movement demanding human rights for Palestinians. Brad, it's been absolutely fabulous speaking to you. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. And a big thanks to all of our listeners for joining us too. Now, before I go, I want to give our team a quick shout out to our producers, Hayat Mongolden and Khalid Sultan, and to our sound designer, George Alwir. Here's to our social media wizards, lead engagement producer, Ayal Malik, and assistant engagement producer, Munira Dosari. And of course, I can't forget the big guy behind the scenes who makes it all possible, our executive producer, Omar Saleh. 
I'm your host, Sami Zaydan. Thanks for your company. We'll chat again next week. 